in the book of James that there were conflicts in the church. Uh, there were certainly disputes between the rich and the poor and the disparities there. But many other conflicts were coming as well, those who didn't want to receive the word with humility as well. And the reality is it didn't just happen in the time of the early church when James was written. Uh, and I'm guessing you probably knew that. Conflict happens now. Conflict happens all the time. It happens in homes, in marriages. It happens in the workplace, between coworkers or between you and the boss. Conflict even happens in the church at times. Conflict is a reality in our world. And so, James is going to address that. He's going to look at conflict. And one of the things I would exp have expected James to do, okay, you're, you know there's a conflict in the churches. You would expect, or at least I would expect, James to say, okay, let me lay out the issues here. This is one side of the argument. This is what they're saying. Here's the other side. And this is who's right in this conflict. I would tend to do that. If I'm asked to help resolve a conflict, let's, let's lay out the issues. James doesn't do that. The amazing thing is James, we don't even know exactly what this conflict or these conflicts were about because James doesn't talk directly about it. He says, let's get to the source. Let's get to the heart of the conflict. And so that's what we're going to see tonight then, the source of conflict uncovered. And I have to, before we get into the passage, mention some of these slides. Uh, the exegesis, the outline is all my own, but I did borrow some of the slides from Kerry Hardy. We mentioned his name before. He was a pastor of mine and then uh, is in North Carolina now in Winston-Salem as a pastor, and he conceptually had some of these slides that have proved helpful to me. So you may recognize those if you've heard Kerry preach this before. But let's look at this. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So as we look at this passage, starting in verse 1 here, how he starts off, and he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And as we see, as we walk through this passage, we're going to see three points here. The source of conflicts discovered in verse 1. The sin of conflicts displayed in 2 and 3, and then the solution to conflicts described in 4 to 6. And as, as I mentioned before, conflicts, they're a reality in this world, but they're, they're a reality because sin exists in this world. And perhaps in your home, in your marriage, there are many conflicts. I don't 
know what's going on in your house. I don't know what's going on in your marriages. But I do know of marriages at my church where there is conflict, and conflict comes up all the time. And you may think, well, that's, that's what marriage is. That's, that's life, and conflicts have to happen. And that is normal. Well, I think what we're going to see here is it doesn't have to be. Not in the home, not between two believers. There doesn't have to be constant quarreling and fighting. We can look at the source and get to the source and root that out. There's going to be differences. You'll have differences of opinion, differences of preference, and certainly differences of personality with you and your spouse or with you and another person. But that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be conflict if you handle it in a godly way. So we need to get to the source and stop it there at the source. So let's look at the source of conflicts discovered there in James 4, verse 1. And James, as we saw before, he likes to ask questions to get us to think. So he asked the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Now he uses these words here, quarrels and conflicts, in the first part of verse 1. And what's interesting is what these words literally mean. What this in quarrels literally means in Greek that it's a war. It pictures a chronic state of war, an ongoing fight, always going on, always there in the background. And conflicts is literally battles, each separate skirmish. And so he's literally saying, what is the source of wars and battles among you? And those are pretty strong terms uh, to say that that's the kind of conflict that's happening in the home or in the church. But in many ways, it's probably an apt description in what's happening in some homes. Maybe it's a, a war that blows up in outbursts of anger, slamming of doors. But maybe it's a cold war. Maybe it's a, a bitterness, a simmering, where nothing is said out of anger, but boy, it's sure felt in the heart. Either one describes what James is talking about here, whether it's the wars or it's the battles among you. And that's what we want to discover. What is the source and kill it at the source? And he follows up this first question with a second. A rhetorical question that says, Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Now first, what does he mean by members that wage war in your members? And normally... We think of many times in Scripture, Paul talks about the church and the members of the church is like the members of the body and that we all need each other. But that's not what he's talking about here, so don't write that down. <laughs> Paul uses members in talking about parts of the body of the church, but James doesn't use members in that way. James instead is talking about your own body, your individual body, and the members in it. Early talked, said in James 3, 5, that the tongue is a member of the body. So he's saying, in your own body, is not the source your pleasures that wage war inside of you? Is that not where the battle is? In you. And this is echoed by Peter. Peter also recognizes the same truth. 
And Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And again, so Peter sees this as inside of the soul. So inside is where the battle is fought. It happens in between your ears, in your mind, in your heart. That's where the battle is fought. To get over conflicts, you've got to fight the battle inside your, your heart, in your own thinking. In a counseling session just the other week, the, uh, the wife was telling me, hey, you know, things haven't really improved and I'm looking for change and had to remind her, look, the, the real change that's going to happen through counseling is, number one, between our sessions, it's your daily life, and it's between your ears. It has to be your thinking that changes. Because I can't change your daily life, and I certainly can't change your thinking. You need to change your thinking and what is right. That's where the battle is fought. It's going on inside of you. So what is? What is this battle going on inside? James says there is not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members. So what are these pleasures, or the ESV says passions? And, you know, don't get me wrong. ESV is fantastic. I'm not, I use the New American because that's how I was raised. I'm a Grace Church kid. You hear about those churches that are KJV only churches that are real, like nuts about KJV. I grew up in an NASB only church, uh, in a sense, but not, not really, not crazy. Um, it's just what I've used. So ESV is fantastic. I have no ill will towards the ESV. Um, I'm just glad we cleared the air there. <laughs> now NIV, I'm, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to uh, get into versions. But in the New American, it says your pleasures, ESV, has passions. What, what is the, the root, what is the Greek word here? It's uh, hedone, from which we get the word hedonism. And the word basically means it's a desire for personal pleasure for any reason. Any, any kind of personal pleasure uh, is what's talked about here. Anything that you want, any kind of desire. And the word is not necessarily negative uh, when it was used at that time. In Scripture, we don't see it used positively. But the fact is, you can have uh, a desire for personal pleasure for any reason and not necessarily bad. We do see it used in a bad way. In Luke 8.14, in Luke 8.14, uh, Jesus is telling the parable of the soils, and he says, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So in this parable, we see that those who hear the gospel and then get distracted by the worries and riches and pleasures, this word here, pleasures, they don't bring fruit. They don't come to maturity. But certainly there are good things in this life that aren't necessarily bad in themselves. Things that you want. The problem is when those desires go rogue. So what are some nor normal desires that we all have? Well, a clean home. I'm pretty sure everyone wants a clean home. A husband who's not a slob. I hear some <laughs> clapping from the ladies. Um, a nice vacation. 
Uh, children disciplined according to what you think is best. These are all normal desires, and we could add many to this. Um, you know, I will often desire a good, you know, dark chocolate candy bar. That's not a bad thing. Well, honey, it's not a bad thing. I can want that. <laughs> or, you know, a lot of bacon. Um, so we all have normal desires, and, nor and desires aren't necessarily bad in themselves. Now, if you didn't want some of these things, if, you know, you know, actually, I really want a dirty home or a husband who's a slob, I'd be a little concerned about you. The problem is when these desires change in our heart to become a sinful desire. And the word that the Bible uses for when a normal desire becomes a sinful desire is lust. It's a lust. And lust basically just means a strong desire. But biblically, a lust is a normal desire that's gone wrong. So how does this happen? How does a normal desire for something become a lust? Well, we read a little bit earlier in the book of James, in James chapter 1, about lust and how it becomes present within our hearts. In James 1, 14 to 15, it says, Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished... It brings forth death. So where this happens of a desire becoming a lust is inside the heart. And as we see from James 1 here, all sin is connected with lust. It's connected with our desires and what we pursue after. And again, when we use the word lust, typically we think of, okay, you're talking about sexual lust. That is a type of lust, but that's not what James is talking about here. Not all lust is sexual lust. There's just a lust, a, a desire for something that we'll see as a desire to something that's more important than your desire to please God. So where does this happen? It happens in the heart, and this is true of all sin. So we have, in our hearts, we'll have a desire, something we want. Again, a clean house, maybe no traffic on the freeway when you go home. Maybe a nice meal when you get home. Um, you don't want your car to have a big, you know, key mark down the side of it. That's a normal desire. But there are times when a desire can become a lust in our hearts. And then when does this happen? This happens when it becomes a controlling desire or it's a ruling desire. That is when a desire becomes a lust because that desire is so important to you that is, takes the place of pleasing God. So desire then changes categories and becomes a lust. If any of these things are true, then, then you're finding you're not honoring God. You're not happy or content. If you don't get what you want, then it's a lust. If you respond sinfully when you don't get what you want, then it's a lust if you're willing to disobey God to get what you want. These are lusts. They're no longer good desires because you're willing to sin against God in order to get that. Now, we don't typically use the word lust when we talk about our desires, even when they go sinful. You don't say, I lust for no traffic going home today. <laughs> I lust for no one to cut me off on the freeway. 
Um, I lust for my husband to play with the children while I get some rest. We don't use those words. We substitute those. Because, you know, if I'm going to say lust, well, it's probably bad and I shouldn't do it. Instead, we say things like, I should have. My husband should watch the kids. And therefore, I have a right to be discontent. I deserve to have a better day. I deserve a home-cooked meal. I deserve my house to look nice. I expect that my wife is going to do whatever. And when we use words like these, often it's a substitution for lust. We're saying, hey, if, if this doesn't happen, then I'm not going to be happy. I should have this. I deserve this. I expect that this happens. And so our desires become expectations or lusts within our hearts. Now, how do we know? How do we make that division, that dividing line? How do we know when a desire has become a lust? Because we've said that, okay, desires are okay, lusts are bad. How do I know when it makes that transformation? Well, there's one simple question you can ask yourself to know if this change has happened. How do you respond when you don't get what you want? How do you respond when things don't go your way? Then quickly it'll become clear if that is just a desire or if that's a lust. So, desire versus lust. A desire, when you don't get what you desire, you're content. You believe that God knows what is best. If that's the case, you desire someone not to cut you off, but they do. If it's just a desire, it's like, okay, God, it's okay. You're in control, and you know what's best. If your husband doesn't take care of the kids as you'd like, then, hey, God, I trust you for that. What you're showing when you do this is your desire for God, your desire to please him is greater than your desire for that thing, whatever it is. Because you're still wanting to honor God, even if you don't get it. But if it's a lust and you don't get what you want, you're not content. You're willing to disobey God to get what you want. And instead, you have shown that your desire for that thing is greater than your desire for God. Now, say, when you want something and you don't get it, we say, yes, you're content. But we need to recognize, of course, there's normal human disappointment. It's not that oh, I got cut off, I'm, I'm happy as can be, or, you know, something horrible happens that, oh, that's no problem, that I'm, you know, think that's fantastic. You, you have normal human disappointment, you know, and that, that's not sinful, but when you respond in a sinful way, complaining, bitterness, uh, arguing, then it's not, that's not normal human disappointment, that is sinful disappointment. And that is dishonoring God. And what you have wanted as a desire has become a lust. So, how do you respond when you don't get what you want and this shows what it is? So, what we see here is this source of conflicts. Let me go back a sec. Source of conflicts discovered. And the source of conflicts, number one, the place it happens is in your heart. And it is your lust. It's the pleasures. 
It's these sinful pleasures. It's desires that have become controlling desires in your heart. James says this is the source of your conflicts. All these problems that you're having, these arguments, it's happening in your heart when you are wanting something so much, you are putting that thing as more important than God. So that's what we see first in verse 1. And secondly, we're going to see the sin of conflicts displayed. So if it's starting then in the heart with our lust, we're now going to see what does it look like? How, does it, how is it viewed when it expre- expresses itself in verses 2 and 3? James writes, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Not you are content, but no, you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend it on your pleasures. So he starts off in verse 2 here, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Now is James talking about murder that was happening in the early church there. And he's writing about people that were killing each other. I don't believe that's the case. I believe he's being figurative here. He was just very figurative earlier when he talked about those quarrels and conflicts in English. In Greek, it is wars and battles. So he's going along with using figurative language here. Later, he'll call them adulteresses, not because he was talking about that particular sin, but using it figuratively of their sinfulness. So I think it'd be a, there's a lot of figurative language here. So he's talking about committing murder as hatred. In fact, if he was talking about murder here, it'd be a little anticlimactic to say you lust, do not have, you commit murder, envious, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, as if fight and quarreling were worse than murder. So we have reason to believe here that it's not talking about actual murder, but it's talking about figuratively. And, and Jesus used this as well, figurative for responding in hatred. In Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus said, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say that whoever is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So there Jesus equates being angry with murder. And and James relies so much on Jesus' teaching, it's likely the same thing that he's doing here. So he's saying you lust and do not have, and so you have this anger inside. And then he follows it, you are envious (coughs) and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He's saying, talking about envious, wanting something that you don't have. And again, it's this same idea of lusting, of desiring something you don't have and you want, and you're willing to, to disobey God in order to get it. And so what is the result? It is these fights and quarrels. Now, what should we do when we desire something and don't get it? That's going to happen. You will desire something and not get it. Well, pray. Look to the Lord. Ask him. That's what we need to do. We need to go to the Lord and ask. And that's what he says here. You do not have because you do not ask. And it's God who provides every good and perfect gift. Mark mentioned it earlier in James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. That is what we do when we want a desire. Is we ask the Lord for it and lay out our request before him. 
So that is the right response, but that is not what they were doing. Sorry, I'm a little bit behind here. In Luke 11, Jesus says, So I say to you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Desires are normal. Regular desires are normal. You lay those before the Lord. And you come to him in prayer. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get everything from the Lord. And how you respond when you don't get it will show what's in your heart, whether it's a normal desire or not. But in this case, they did not receive it because first, they didn't ask. But secondly, when they did ask, they asked with wrong motives. They wanted it for themselves, he says, to spend it on your own pleasures. They had selfishness in their heart, and that is why they were asking. So when you desire something, go to the Lord, but go to the Lord with the right motives. Go to the Lord trusting in him. To spend it on your pleasures. The word here for spend it has, has the idea of spending lavishly or squandering, using it all up. But we see as he talks about these motives again, it's happening in the heart, and that's where the problem is. And these readers were having wrong motives in the things that they were asking for. And were not trusting in God for it. So when, when that happens, when there is wrong motives and a desire, then it'll, be, it'll show itself in displays of hatred, of envy, fighting, arguing. And it's these selfish desires that are the source of this. And certainly, it's displayed in what we see here of arguments and fighting and quarreling when there is the lack of going to the Lord in prayer for those things. So as you think about conflicts that you've had, number one, examine your heart. What am I desiring? And I have I put that in a place that's more important than the Lord. And secondly, Am I, instead of responding that way, going to the Lord in prayer, asking, asking, not with selfish motives, but Lord, I am willing to take whatever answer you give when I ask for this desire to be fulfilled. And if you go with that, the Lord is happy to give you. Now, he want, he'll give you what is best. Sometimes it's not what you think is best. That doesn't mean your every desire is fulfilled, but God will do what is best for his glory and your good. And you have to believe that. You have to trust that. And it may be very different from what you want. But trust the Lord that he knows what is best. So we've seen the source of conflicts discovered and the sin of conflicts displayed. But finally here we're going to look to the solution to conflicts described. And that's in verses 4 to 6. And James writes, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, in the solution to the conflicts, He's going to give two 
main steps in verses 4 to 6 to this solution. And the first step is this. Recognize the magnitude of your sin. The first thing you must do is recognize the magnitude of your sin. And we see that with the language that James gives here. He writes, you adulteresses. And he had been calling them brothers, my brothers, brethren, throughout the book. But here he says, you adulteresses. Now his readers, we've talked about before, these are Jews. And they'd be very familiar with the Old Testament. So they would know exactly what James is talking about here. Frequently in the Old Testament, Israel is compared to an adulteress, running after false gods, running after Baal, instead of coming to him. And that is what James is alluding to here. So that's why he uses the feminine adulteresses, not adulterers, because he's alluding to this Old Testament concept of Israel. Instead of seeking after him, the true God, they were going after false gods. And so James is saying, look, you are going after a false god of your own pleasure, not after the true God. And he uses a very strong term here, calling them adulteresses. And he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And later calls them an enemy of God. And again, these are strong terms, but it's an important thing that James is trying to show here. He is providing a test of whether you're truly in the faith or not. If your life is characterized by these desires, by things you want more than God, then you're actually still an enemy of God. And we know before faith, all of us are enemies of God. But James says here, if if your desires are the most important thing to you, then you are still an enemy of God. You are not saved. And so this here then is a test, a test whether or not we are truly one of God's children or not. Are you a friend of the world? Is it more important, the things of this world? And he's not saying here, oh, wishes to be a friend of the world, I'm not supposed to have any non-Christian friends. We just around Christians, it's a holy huddle, just me and the other Christians. It's It's not what James is saying here, and Christ said Uh, It's not that way at all. I'm sending you out into the world, not to be of the world, but you're to be in and among the world. Friendship with the world means that you are in agreement with the world. And the world, here the word is cosmos, it's the egocentric world system that sees pleasure as the ultimate goal. Is not that what the world sees as the most important thing? Do what makes sense for you. Seek after pleasure in your life. If, if your marriage is bringing sadness, then divorce your wife. Divorce your husband. If this isn't satisfying you, do something else. The world says that your pleasure is the most important thing. And the word for friendship is philia. And you're familiar, we talk about phileo, about love, a brotherly love. And this is a love For what the world says is important, a love for pleasure. And if that characterizes your life, if the most important thing to you is seeking out pleasure in your own life, then you are still an enemy of God. And you need to bow in repentance before him. I don't know each one of you. I don't know what your day looks like, your weeks look like. But certainly examine your heart. What is the most important thing to you? You show it 
by the decisions that you make? Do you seek after whatever job will get you the most money, get you the most happiness in life, or, or have you put Christ as first in your life? This is a test of true faith. The first thing we need to do is to recognize the magnitude of sin. You need to say, okay, my sin is demonstrating, if, if this is continual in my life, that I am not a believer at all. Now, the reality is that some of us as believers, those of you who do know Christ, this sometimes characterizes your life as a believer, and it shouldn't. This is serious sin before God to pursue pleasure above him. So we must examine the magnitude of the sin. Secondly, recognize the magnitude of God's grace, he says in verses 5 to 6. And here we see it's a, the verse 5 is a challenging statement in the Greek, and it comes across as challenging as well. And there's a lot of reasons verse 5 is challenging here. He talks about Scripture, and he quotes Scripture, and yet it's not clear what passage of Scripture in the Old Testament is he speaking of here. And secondly, spirit. Is it talking about the human spirit? Is it talking about the Holy Spirit? And so who is being jealous here? Is the Father jealous? Is the Spirit jealous? And whose spirit is that? So there's a lot of challenging parts to this. And in fact, speaking of Bible versions, what I think who gets this right is the New International Version. And it says this, Do you think that Scripture says without reason that the spirit he has caused to live in us envies intensely. It's also a note in the margin on the New American, if you have that. But the idea is this. He's saying the spirit that God has given us is one that goes to sinful desires, that has jealous desires. So that is a truth. We have a heart problem, is what James reminds us again here. We have a heart problem. But, James says, he gives a greater grace. Despite the incredible magnitude of our sin, God's grace is even greater. And he quotes Proverbs 3.34, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so actually the verse 5 where he says, does the scripture speak to no purpose? I think the best understanding is he's quoting Later here in verse 6, that God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. That's the quote that he's speaking of in verse 5. And the point then is this. The spirit, how God has made us, we tend to lust after things. But the reality is God, God's grace is greater. The magnitude of sin is great, but God's grace is even greater than our sin. And we have to remember that. That is the solution of Seeing God's grace as the greater thing. Now the next passage we're going to look at talks about a more full response. And he speaks of repentance. But what I'd like to do here is also lay this out and illustrate the truths in this passage in another way, not just in outline form. And so what we'll see here, let me go through here. Um, how does our thinking go wrong? Let's look at this lust problem and what happens in our hearts. So what happens, and this passage lays out, it talks about these desires we have, or we may call them expectations, or what actually becomes sinful lusts. And these are these things that we really want. 
But reality, well, that's, that's somewhere down here, usually. Um, we don't always get what we want. Reality is something different than our life. Now, these desires might be, you know, that your wife does things the way that you would, or your husband lead the family the way you want him to, but it doesn't happen. Now, the problem comes when we continue to focus in an unhealthy way on these desires, on these lusts, and that is where our heart is all the time. That is the source of the conflicts. Now, the symptoms look like this. They look like conflict. Anger, complaining, bitterness, depression. These aren't the problem. People come for counseling for these problems, but the real problem is the heart problem of these lusts in the heart. These others are merely symptoms. They're results of lusts in the heart. So that is, that is the issue. That is what's going on, what needs to be changed. So we need to change that kind of thinking. We need to go from, from this focus on what we desire, what we lust after, and all the problems associated with that. And we need to put on a whole new mindset. We need to be thinking differently. So what should that look like? Well, we still have our desires, or what we may eventually have as lust because we desire them too much, and we still have reality down here. But instead, now, in our thinking, we remember what we deserve. You must remember what you deserve. And instead of continually to be thinking on what you don't have, you think about what you deserve. And what do you deserve? Deserve God's wrath. His judgment, eternal condemnation, and no plan's ever working out. That's what you truly deserve. Now, you can probably check the box and say, yeah, I know that. But on a day-to-day -day basis, do you believe that? Is that your daily theology or just your confessional theology? Do you remind yourself of that truth? I deserve no good thing working. And that is where our focus should be. That's the new thinking that we are to put on is focus on, Lord, you have given me so much more. And what is the result then when you do that? The result's gratitude. You're just grateful for anything the Lord's given you. If one out of a hundred things works out, one of your desires out of a thousand, thank you, Lord. Because you know when that does work out, it wasn't because you deserved it. It was because of God's grace. And that's what the passage reminds us of. That God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. We can experience God's grace when we come to him. So the next time conflict comes, and conflict will come, consider what is your thinking? Have you made some desire as the most important thing? Have you put that as so important that you're willing to respond in a sinful way when things don't go your way? And repent. Repent of that. Say, Lord, I, I've put this thing as more important. And what often that's talked about is it's spiritual idolatry is what it is. That thing has been on the throne instead of the Lord that's on the throne. And instead, give your desires to God. Go to him in prayer. Ask of the Lord of those things that you want. And if he doesn't give you those things, be content. Trust the Lord in that. 
The Lord knows what's best. Trust that his way is best. And just rejoice in gratitude and God's grace for any, any good thing that God has done for you. So if you want to end the conflicts, go to the source. Change your thinking. Think on God's grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word deals with real life and that there are conflicts and the conflict, Lord, is in our own hearts. I pray for each person in here as they think of different issues that come up that they would be ready to repent and see what wrong thinking that they may have had and putting that desire is so important in their own hearts. Lord, we know that there is no greater joy than truly walking with you, walking pleasing to you. Lord, may we live like that. Pray that each person would live like that each day. Lord, we thank you for your great grace. We praise you and pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.